0: Thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. The atonement is one of those parts of Christianity that sounds very severe and intense and possibly unpleasant. You hear it used in popular usage for being, um, it's like you did something bad and now you have to pay the price for it, or the universe is going to kind of take a karmic revenge on you for what you've done. There's a novel that came out in the 90s called Atonement, in which someone has to revisit their past in an unpleasant way. But that's actually not what atonement means. To atone for your sins does not mean you did something really bad and now you have to suffer until God is happy with your suffering. Instead, atonement is just a compound word. at one meant The state of two things being in unity, the state of two things being at one. And it's not even a church word, per se. So, there are usages of this word from the 16th century. So, Sir Thomas More at one point says, having more regard to their old variants than their new at one their new atonement, their new unity. So, it just actually is describing the state of two things becoming at one. And these things are God and humankind, our human nature and the divinity of God. So, In the Garden of Eden, of course, we have the situation in which humanity is created to know God, to love God, to be the priests of creation, returning to God uh, from that which God has blessed us with, to make God known to the world, to be God's emissaries to the rest of creation. There's this unity of God and humanity. They're not the same. It's not like the humans are gods, but they are united in friendship and love and joy. And in the fall, in the murder of Abel, in the Tower of Babel, in all these different uh, Genesis stories, we see humanity creating a rupture between ourselves and God. This dissonance between humanity and God arises, and atonement is that being overcome, returning to a state of pure love and friendship and joy between God and humankind looked at it from this perspective, atonement is literally the whole point of Christianity. The purpose of Christianity is overcoming this division between God and humankind, and atonement is just the word for that being overcome. Humanity, God, now at one. In a sense, there is no disagreement among Christians about the atonement. I think all Christians would say that the reason Jesus came and the reason Jesus lived and the reason Jesus died and was resurrected and ascended into heaven is to return humans to this right relationship with God, once again being in a state of oneness. The problem comes when you ask, how exactly did that happen? What did that look like? What were the mechanics of that? And that's where lots of different traditions get into states of serious disagreement. So today we'll look a little bit at how the early church dealt with the atonement, kind of what that meant to the early church, and then we'll maybe stray into a little bit of the later history of how we went down some different roads. First we will have a very quick pop quiz on Judaism. So what is the holiest day of the Jewish year? If you said Hanukkah, you need to go back to Hebrew school because it is Yom Kippur, So Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. It's the day on which Jewish people find reconciliation with one another, with themselves, with God. The whole holiday, the whole fast day is bent on this idea of reconciliation, of once again returning to a state of right relationship and unity. If you read about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, it is focused very much on the ritual in the temple, in which there's a sacrifice. There are two goats appointed. On one goat, all the sins of the people are put, and that is cast out. And then there is another goat, the goat of the high priest, which is sacrificed to God. And then the blood from that goat is sprinkled all over the temple or whipped all over the temple. And it is cleansing the temple from the taint of sin. So, God is the source of all life and all goodness, but God is pure holiness. So, God is so overwhelmingly holy that if something unholy comes into contact with God, it's like pure darkness coming into contact with pure light. In that situation, there's not a contest between the darkness and the light, nor is there a situation in which the light's like, okay, you just go over and you do your dark thing on that part of the room. I'll stay on my side of the room and do my thing. Darkness is just the absence of light. And so when a dark room is flooded with light, it's just full of light. There is no more darkness. And because God is the source of all being, the source of all that is, when the fullness of God encounters something that is non-being, that is darkness, that is not light, then that's just gone. It's just obliterated. So there's the sense that when the unholy comes into contact with God's holiness, that's a bad situation for the unholy. Not because God is taking revenge or actively destroying or seeking out and tearing apart or something like that, but because the darkness cannot stand against the light. And if something has become so overwhelmed with darkness, if there is nothing but darkness to a person or a place or a thing, well, if God's holiness shows up, that's not a good thing. So, on the Day of Atonement, this blood of the sacrifice goat that's being sprinkled all over the temple, it is wiping away the taint of sin. It is wiping away the kind of lingering unholiness left by human sin. This is a very foreign way of thinking for us because we no longer live in a world where animal sacrifice is normative. Um so it's a it's a it's a different world picture, it's a different uh way of wrapping your mind around that which is utterly incomprehensible the nature of God. But in Leviticus there's a lot of attention given to the Yom Kippur sacrifice of the goat and the holiness that is restored to the temple through the wiping of this blood everywhere. One thing that's worth pointing out is that the suffering of the goat or the death of the goat is completely beside the point. The point of this is not, people did bad things, so this goat has to really, really suffer. We have to make the goat as miserable as possible for as long as... No, that's not how it worked at all. In the ancient world animals were walking chunks of food. And so the goat is just brought in. He's killed in a simple way, clean way, not a lot of, no suffering, There's little suffering as possible for a goat. And then it's, the point is having his blood, his life force, which has been consecrated by God, which has been made holy to God, then being placed on things, wiped over things, and making those things Free from the stain of sin, returning them to a state in which they can encounter God's holiness without being a danger to themselves, so that the holiness of God can continue to reside in the temple for another year. So, Kippur, Day of Kippur, is is the Day of Atonement. This day of a uh, literal this wiping of the blood. So, this etymologically comes from this word for to wipe. So, it's really all about this holy consecrated life 's blood being wiped over the surfaces of the temple to in a sense reconsecrate or re remake holy the temple for another year that 's the word that gets translated in English as atonement, and the operative idea here is that it is reunifying the temple, reunifying the place of God with the holiness of God. This becomes operative in the crucifixion because for Christians this Service of the sacrifice of the goat and his placing of the, the the high priest placing of the blood all over the temple. This is a foreshadowing or a type or a preview of coming attractions for the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, because what Christ is doing is literally atoning humanity to God, literally bringing humanity back into unity, into reconciliation, into perfect relationship with God. How does that work? Like, What are the mechanisms for that? How does it actually go down? Why does it have to be that way? Well, it's interesting to kind of ask that question of Holy Scripture, because you get all these different ways of talking about what that looks like. There are all these different metaphors. Again, we are tiny human beings with tiny human brains trying to think about God, the creator of all that is, who is infinite and eternal. And when we do that, we encounter some major challenges. We can't even draw an accurate picture of God, much less understand his logic and rationale and his ways of being. His ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts higher than our thoughts. So the biblical authors come up with all these different metaphors, or the Holy Spirit gives them all these different metaphors for discussing what this looks like, what that is, what actually happens in the atonement. So if you look at the Gospel of Mark, there's a lot about ransom. If you look at Ephesians, you hear this idea of redemption. In Romans, we hear about the mercy seat, the actual, um, the actual place where the blood was wiped in the Holy of Holies. We hear about reconciliation in Romans. We hear about purification in Hebrews. We hear about sacrifice in Hebrews. We hear about taking away sin in Hebrews, we hear about justification in Romans, we hear about salvation in the Gospels, especially in Matthew. And so, you have all these different operative descriptions of what that atonement looks like, what is actually taking place. So, what did the early church have to say about this? When we go back to our old friend Irenaeus of Lyon, the Turkish Christian who became a bishop in France, Uh, writing in the 170s and 180s, all of these ideas are actually active in how he conceives of the atonement. So for him, the atonement, in part, depends on the incarnation. The very fact that he is fully God and fully human is a part of this atonement, is the atonement in and of itself. But there are lots of other things which are also the atonement in and of itself. So the fact that God is born as a baby, that this human being is God, that is this perfect unification, literally, of humanity and divinity. St. Irenaeus says, Thus it became the mediator between God and humans, by his relationship to both, to bring both to friendship and concord, and present humanity to God, while he revealed God to humanity for in what way could we be partakers of the adoption of sons unless we had received from him through the son that fellowship which refers to himself unless his word having been made flesh had entered into communion with us wherefore also he passed through every stage of life restoring all to communion with god so on the one hand just the very act of the incarnation that is atonement done deal but then he goes on to say, the atonement really happens when Christ is perfectly obedient to God. So we have this human being who is totally obedient to God. He, we have Adam in the Old Testament, in Genesis, who is just given this really simple fast. Eat anything you want, just don't eat this one fruit. And he's like, I'm going to eat that one fruit. Christ, after his baptism, goes out into the wilderness and he's being tempted by Satan and he eats nothing at all. He's given these temptations of food and power and pride, wealth, all these temptations, and he resists all of them because his humanity is purely focused on God because he is both fully God and fully human. So, for Irenaeus, the obedience that Christ shows in his battle against the enemy in the desert, the obedience that Christ shows every minute, every millisecond of his life, the obedience Christ shows on the cross and in his death, this is where the atonement happens. We have this one perfectly obedient, perfectly loving, perfectly peaceful, perfectly good human being who in himself embodies the union between God and humanity. But that's not all. Irenaeus also talks about what happens in the death of Christ. When Christ actually goes down into death and destroys death itself and rises victorious from the grave, the resurrection, that is actually the atonement. There is the atonement in and of itself. And here the idea is that in our separation from God, in our rejection of God, we give ourselves over to the opposite of God, which is death which is evil, which is sin, which is the enemy, which is non-being, all these things are what we have given ourselves over to. And so on in Christ's death and his descent to the dead, he in a sense pays our debt. Not in the sense that he is um God is really angry with us and so he has to destroy his own son to feel better about things, not even close, that he is actually going down to death as the one just person, as the fullness of love and life and joy and peace, and he is confronting death face to face, and he is blowing death wide open. Christ, he says, rectifying the disobedience, which had occurred by reason of a tree, so you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, through that disobedience, which was wrought out upon a tree, so upon the cross, so he rectifies the disobedience of one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, through the tree of the cross. He goes on to say the mighty word, the word of God, the logos of God, and very man, a absolute total 100% human being, redeeming us by his own blood in a manner consonant with reason, gave himself as a ransom for those who had been led into captivity. So in the ancient world, you have slavery coming in maybe three different ways. Some people are born into slavery. They're enslaved people who have children and those children are born into slavery. Some people are enslaved in battle. So your army is at war with Rome and you lose, and they capture a bunch of soldiers and they enslave them or you are uh, a debt slave. So, you spend too much on the American Express card, you can't pay it back, American Express needs to have the $20,000 that you owe, and so someone pays that for you, and then you're enslaved to that person until you can return the $20,000 to them. So, in this metaphor of ransom, Christ is giving himself for all of us. We have been enslaved to to death, to evil, to non-being, to the enemy, all this stuff. And Christ is giving himself on our behalf. It is not that God is so angry he has to beat up his own son to feel better about things. Instead, it is that we have given ourselves to evil, to death, to sin, to the enemy, and Christ gives himself as a ransom for us. So, back to Irenaeus, and the Lord indeed by his passion destroyed death and dispersed error and put an end to corruption and destroyed ignorance while he manifested life and revealed truth and bestowed the gift of incorruption so not only in his death on the cross but what he does when confronting death not only does he give himself for our ransom, he actually destroys death while he's at it. So, in a famous sermon by St. John Chrysostom, he says that death took a body and received God. Death was trying to just like take another dead person, and instead he received the fullness of life himself, of light himself, of being himself, and death was like a boa constrictor trying to swallow a grand piano, and he just exploded. And there you have the atonement. It is this ransom. It is this freedom from slavery to sin and evil and death, that is the atonement in and of itself. But that's not all, because the atonement is also the teaching of Christ, the example of Christ, the life of Christ. For Irenaeus, the atonement also involves our conforming our lives into Christ's life, our own obedience to God, our being transformed in God and by God in our lives. Christ, he says, leads humanity into communion with God, into oneness with God, into atonement with God. And he does that by teaching us God's service. And for Irenaeus, the glory of a human being, he says, is to serve God without ceasing. Like, this is what our glory consists in. Anytime we are being truly human, being truly ourselves, being the fullness of human being, it is in service of God. That's what our glory looks like. So, in a sense, the atonement for Irenaeus is the teaching of Christ that leads to transformation in human beings. That is the atonement in and of itself. That is humanity and God living in terms of unity. For Irenaeus, all that Christ is, all that Christ taught, all that Christ did, all of these are, in a sense, absolutely essential parts of what it is for humanity and God to once again come into unity, to once again find this atonement, this atonement. It's much like the picture we see in the Bible, in which we have all these different metaphors operating for the atonement, all these different descriptions of how the atonement works. So if we return back to that initial list of various Greek words that address the atonement, we have this idea of redemption in Ephesians. You hear the word redemption a lot, and it gets thrown around, but we don't really stop and think about what this actually means. So in the ancient world, as I mentioned, you have a lot of debt slaves, people who have been sold into slavery because they couldn't pay their own debts. And the price of a person becomes the price of that debt. So to redeem that person is to actually, if they owe $20,000, it is to pay back the $20,000 on their behalf and grant them freedom. So one of these operative metaphors is that we ourselves gave ourselves over to the power of sin and evil and death, to ignorance, to corruption. We gave ourselves over to the power of the enemy. And so Christ pays the price, not in the sense of Christ Uh, receives a legal penalty from the ultimate judge, because somebody has to receive a legal penalty, but rather in giving himself, in giving his life of perfect obedience, in giving his own human life on the cross and descending to death, he gives himself, which is of infinite worth, uh, on our behalf, thus liberating us. We have the metaphors of sacrifice, of purification, Paul lifting up the hilastadion, the mercy seat, which sometimes gets translated as propitiation, but that's more of a pagan and not a Jewish understanding of this word. All of these sacrifice and purification metaphors are also a description of what's happening, just in the way that the temple is cleansed with this, this, um, consecrated blood, the sacred blood, this blood that had been made holy to God, this life force that had been made holy to God by the high priest. So Christ, as both high priest and sacrificial victim, brings forth this consecrated holy blood. And it is, in a sense, scattered over the whole creation, over all humanity, making all things holy once again, purifying all things from the taint of death, from the taint of evil, from the taint of sin, and once again returning us to this state of consecration in which we can be face-to-face with God's holiness, in which we can be the home of God's holiness. We have this word justification, being made righteous, with God, being made righteous before God. And this is the same term that gets applied to the temple after the atonement happens, after the temple is cleansed and purified. It is once again righteous. So this is not a state of doing so many good deeds that God starts to like us again, nor is it a state of God pretending to like us even though we're terrible. It is us actually being restored to the place where God's holiness can dwell the word salvation gets applied to the atonement in the New Testament, sozo or soteria. And salvation is not just what happens when a person is drowning or lost and somebody plucks them out of the water, out of the forest or whatever. Soteria in Greek is like the fullness of well-being, the fullness of the person, soundness, wholeness, total well-being. So it is a return to the actual harmony with God for which we were created, the perfection of human being that we see in Christ, and that we in Christ have access to and can once again experience. This is all just to say that for the New Testament writers, the atonement is a gargantuan concept, which incorporates all sorts of ways of understanding what happens by virtue of Christ's incarnation And his life and teachings, and his passion and death, and his descent to the dead, and his destruction of death, and his resurrection, his ascension, his coming again to make the creation new. So all of these things are really wrapped up in this idea of atonement. And that's the case for early church writers like Irenaeus. But all this looks very different from many modern theories of atonement. So what's the deal with those modern atonement theories? To answer that, we kind of have to fast forward about a thousand years to the 11th century. In England, you have an Archbishop of Canterbury called St. Anselm. He is an Italian who then serves at an abbey in France for a long time, becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury in England, and in England he encounters some pretty nutty theology there is a prevalent, this is kind of one way of telling the story, this is how some people explain where some of his work comes comes from. There's a prevalent theory called the Two Empires Theory, in which you basically have the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the enemy, and they're constantly at war, and it's sort of like the USSR and the USA in the 1980s, you know, they've both got lots of nukes pointed at each other, who's going to win? It's basically an, an even power struggle. So, that's a terrible theology, because God is the source of all being. Without God's will, nothing has existence, nothing has reality. Like, there is nothing that is in any way in the same category with God. He is infinitely bigger, infinitely greater, infinitely more glorious, infinitely more powerful than anything. So, it's, like, even the comparison of the USSR versus, like, a colony of termites would still be too close of an even match. The gigantic country with eleven time zones and all these nuclear weapons, like a hundred termites. Even those are both extant within the creation. Even those are both on the same plane of being. Whereas God versus the enemy—that's—it's—it's it's inconceivable how different those things are. So Anselm found the average Joe, average lady on the street, thought about the atonement as. The way that God kind of pulled a fast one on his enemy and finally was able to get a little bit of the upper hand. And he was like, no, 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 that's terrible theology. God is infinitely more powerful than the enemy or anybody else. Like that, God doesn't need to pull a fast one. God doesn't need to cheat at cards. You have it completely wrong. So he's thinking about how do I tell the story of the atonement in a way that will be relevant to this culture in which I find myself here in chivalrous, ye old merry England. And so he says, okay, you know how everybody has a credit score, right? And everybody in the medieval world is like, yeah, absolutely, credit score, really important. And he says, "You know how you can't you can't get a job without a good credit score, you can't get a farm without a good credit score, you can't serve in the army without a good credit score." And they're like, "Yeah, absolutely. We know about that." Except he doesn't use the word credit score. He uses the word honor, which is the medieval version of the credit score. So everything you do, anything you want to do, anything you want to acquire, all of this is mediated by your personal honor, which is this Public credit score that you have. So, if people know you to be an honorable person, someone who repays their debts, they'll probably lend you money. If people know you to be an honorable person, someone who shows up when there's fighting to be done, they'll let you farm their land in exchange for military service. If people know you to be an honorable person, they'll let you marry their child or whatever. If people know you to be dishonorable, someone who doesn't repay their debts, you're not going to get a dime. If they know you to be someone who shies away from a fight when there's fighting to be done, they're definitely not going to give you a plot of land in exchange for military service because you're not even going to show up. So if somebody pushes you around, makes you look like a clown, or if you do something like not showing up to a battle or not repaying your debts or running out on your spouse or whatever it is, people know about that and you lose All mobility in society. You lose a lot of agency. You lose all your social capital. You have this credit score called honor. So he says, okay, we all know how important honor is and how if someone steals from you, not only do they take your $5, they're also damaging your honor because suddenly people know you're a pushover that people can walk all over you, you're not going to fight back, it doesn't matter, and your honor is actually reduced. And so we all agree here in merry old England, that when someone steals from us, we not only have to get the money back, we also have to get our honor back. And we might do that by, if they're a social equal, maybe fighting some sort of duel, if they are beneath us, paying us an extra amount on top of that. So you stole my five dollars, I get my $5 back, and then you also owe me $10 on top of that so I can get my honor back, so I can show the world that nobody pushes me around, I'm not a pushover, I will definitely show up if there's a battle, I will farm my land, I will be an honorable spouse, all this stuff. I'm not going to have my honor abused by you stealing from me. So there's the price of the thing you stole, and then there's the price of my honor on top of that because I have to keep that credit score up. 600, all the time. Got to buy a house. Anyway. So Anselm says, okay, well, let's think about it this way. We all know that's how the world works. You have the value of the thing, and then the value of the honor. What does humanity owe to God? Perfect obedience. God created us for obedience. What does humanity give to God? Nada. Definitely not perfect obedience. Quite the opposite. So, humanity has this debt we have to pay back to God, which is a debt of perfect obedience. But even if, from today forward, you only pay God perfect obedience, you're just loving God with your heart and mind and soul and strength and loving your neighbors yourself 24-7, you've still dishonored God. And what about the honor price? How are you going to pay the honor price back to God? So, if, you're, if you are God yourself— then you could fight a duel with God, you know, because your, your honor and his honor are worth the same value. So, if he kills you, you kill him. That is a payment. That's fair and square. But if you are of lower standing than God, and who's not, then how could you possibly come up with the amount of wealth or sacrifice or whatever to pay God back his honor? It would be utterly inconceivable, utterly impossible. So, Anselm in his book, Cur Deus Homo, Why Why the God-Man, he says, you'd have to have a perfect human being who is absolutely perfect in every way, gave God total perfect obedience. And then you'd also have to have God himself paying back the honor. You have to have, in a sense, a a duel between God and God, or the God sacrificing himself to God. And that way, that's the only way you could have the person paying back the five dollars, plus paying back the $10 of the honor, paying back what was taken from God and the harm done to his honor so that his credit score remains fantastic. He also says, and don't, Don't take this as Anselm being simplistic. He says, God doesn't care, you know, it doesn't matter what God's credit score is to the world because God is God. Like, God can do whatever He wants. It doesn't matter what humans think about Him. But if humans don't think about Him in the right way, we will never find Him. We will never find our relationship with Him, our atonement with Him. So He has to maintain that credit score, not for His benefit, but for our benefit. So we know just how good and just and honorable God is. This is all very broad brush. If you're interested in this, just go read Cur Deus Homo, because it's really interesting. So, Anselm says, the only way you can do this, accomplish this, is perfect human, who is also God. Oh, wait, right, that's Christ. So, Christ pays back the debt owed by humanity to God by living a life of perfect obedience, and then he pays back the honor to God by being God himself who is sacrificed on the cross. For Anselm, this is not the perfect, divine, absolute explanation outlining every detail of exactly how the atonement happens. He was just trying to make this comprehensible to people culturally relevant to people and also get them away from this very bad theology which conceived of the enemy and god as basically equals so this theology for a couple hundred years people say oh that's what a helpful metaphor that is just fantastic i'm going to use that in a sermon that is really that just makes me think a little bit differently thinking outside the box great job anselm But over time, it kind of gets ossified into being, this is the full and perfect explanation of exactly how the atonement happens, which is not what Anselm intended. Later, people start reading this, and they think, eh, honor, culture, that's not really our thing anymore, exactly. But what it lends itself to is a legalistic understanding. So let's say somebody breaks a law, somebody's got to pay the penalty. If nobody pays the penalty, that means the legal system is falling down on the job and is no longer just. So, God is perfectly loving, but also perfectly just. And his love demands mercy and compassion, but his justice demands somebody paying the price, somebody suffering. So, if you go into a restaurant and you bring your spray paint and you write the word Larry all over every surface somebody's got to pay for that. Somebody's got to pay back the restaurant. Somebody's got to be punished for that unless the legal system's falling down on its job. So let's say you did this, but you have a really close friend who loves you so much that he bursts into the restaurant when the police are examining the word Larry with her magnifying glasses. And he says, I am Larry. I did this. Send me to jail. Well, you might say, thank you. Or you might say you're totally insane. But whatever the case, Larry sacrificed himself for you. He took the jail time for you. He paid the fine for you. And so, this is how people in the Reformation era start thinking about Anselm's honor theory of atonement and moving it into a kind of legalistic theory of atonement. And this is what sometimes gets called the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement. Penal, because it's like like the law system, like prison, like being punished, Uh, substitutionary, because Christ substitutes himself for us, for Larry in this case, and the atonement, obviously, theory of the atonement, how it all goes down, how it works. So, we're taking this extremely broad early church understanding of the atonement, which involves the incarnation of Christ, which involves the teaching of Christ, which involves the obedience of Christ, which in involves the death of Christ, the passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ, the blood of Christ, the defeat of death by Christ, the victorious rising from the tomb by Christ. All of that stuff is the atonement, and it's narrowing it down. That being said, it doesn't mean these theories are wrong or awful or out of key with the Bible or the early church. They're just a sort of narrow subset of the ideas from scripture and from the church fathers, which are much larger. It's a much larger, wider, broader view of the atonement than what one finds in modern atonement theory. In the 20th century, a Lutheran bishop, Gustav Aulon, tried to get away from these, the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement and Anselm's atonement theory, which is sometimes called the satisfaction theory of the atonement, and come up with the original, true early church version which focused not on this kind of broad uh, picture of atonement, but on one teeny tiny facet, just like satisfaction and just like penal substitution. For Allen, the evil powers which Christ overcomes are not exactly independent sin or non-being or all that rebels against God. They're actually the servants of God. He says uh, they're the executants of God's judgment. So these evil powers which Christ overcomes are in a sense the servants of God's wrath, and Christ is the embodiment, or the servant of, or the messenger of, or whatever, of God's grace and God's mercy. So for Allen, the entire atonement is this sort of um, interdivine duel. It is God. In his mercy, battling against God in his wrath, and God's mercy defeats God's wrath. This is really coming from Luther's idea of sola gratia. So everything proceeds from the grace of God, which, in one sense, is a very orthodox, very early church idea, but in another sense, uh, moves maybe a bit away from what you would find in someone like Irenaeus. So for Allen, you have Christ, who is God's mercy, going down into death to battle with. God's wrath, or the executance of God's judgment, death and sin and evil, which for Allen, in a way, are the harshness of God. So it is God quelling God's harshness. And he makes this move to get away from anything but God being involved in any of these giant power moves in uh, salvation history. So it's a reasonable and interesting project, but it's also very different from anything that you would find in the early church. It's not that he doesn't take anything from scripture or anything from the fathers, but just as Anselm and uh, those who put together penal substitutionary atonement did, he focuses in on this kind of one specific metaphor or this one piece of the atonement and enlarges that to make it an entire system and gives it kind of its own set of meanings, which are arguably not present entirely in the original format. So you have all these different uh, systems of the atonement. There's an interesting one that came out last year. It's called. It's in a book called uh, Deification Through the Cross, an Eastern Christian Theology of Salvation by a priest called uh, Father Khalid Anatolius. It's really interesting but all of these systems at their best are really just trying to take a deep dive into what scripture says what the tradition of the fathers say and just try and meditate on um this incredible beautiful amazing mystery of the unification the atonement the atonement of humanity and god in and through the person of jesus christ so that's a bit about the early understanding of the atonement and uh, where we have Gone with it as a church in various directions. So it's been great spending some time with you examining the history of Christianity, and I look forward to doing it again with you next time.